You're all set up at home with your new witch, but what do you feed it? Today, me and Leandra are talking about conscious cooking, ethical eating, and the perspectives that we have on what witches should eat. I'm Leandra Witchwood. And I'm Elise Wells. And welcome to the Magic Kitchen Podcast, where we talk about magic, kitchen witchcraft, herbs, and everything in between. jump into our fun topic on what to feed a witch this week. I wanted to invite you to my workshop on May 6th, where I'm talking about the mystical connections between Eastern magic, influenced by Hinduism, Buddhism, and how that influences Western occult practices more than you probably think. You know, we all know about the chakras, and most people I know who call themselves witches use the chakras in their teachings, use them in their practice. And that's something that comes from Hinduism. But there's a lot more to it from the way we view the elements, the way we incorporate them and connect them to directions, the tools that we use. Much of it comes from Eastern spiritual practices. So in my workshop on Saturday, May 6th, I will be exploring that a little bit more. So you can get tickets to that on seekingnumina.com slash events or the link in the description. And if you're a patron, you get a discount code. So check that out. And if you're listening to this after it comes out, you can message me and I'm always selling those recordings as well as courses. Yeah. Oh, I love how much we have going on in our communities too. And um, there's just so many things like not only do we get together and discuss our most recent episodes in the um the pantry in our, in our table talks, but we also um, get to like interact with our listeners. And I think that's the best part is interacting with everyone and, you know, imparting our knowledge (laughs) onto those who are seeking. And um, so you have, you have your workshops coming up. I have some coming up for me. I have prosperity, Witch coming up and this one is so amazingly important, I think, for all of our journeys, because we are in that capitalistic roller coaster, most of us. And I know when I was growing up, like I was born into poverty, I didn't have a whole lot of stuff. So I was taught immediately that money is the root of all evil, that it's the source of all struggle, that sort of thing. And it wasn't until I started teaching myself and started expanding my vibration toward money that I realized that it's an actual magical tool. It is an egregore that we should be using every single day. And that's what I'm teaching in this course. So this one is um, May 18th. It's a whole workshop. It's going to be an hour and a half, two hour long workshop. And you can attend live or the recording. Um, Go to the Rebel Mystic uh, link in the the, uh, description, or you can go to my website, leandrawitchwood.com and access the information there. But we are really going to dig into 
the shadow around money, our cultural shadow, our, you know, our resistances, our bad habits, that sort of thing. So it's going to be a lot of magic, a lot of inspiration, a lot of energy work, but it's also going to be practical work as well. So I hope you'll join me in that workshop. I also wanted to tell everybody about these temples I got to visit over my birthday weekend. I welcomed in my Saturn return in Malta. And Malta is a small island kind of off the coast of Italy on the border of the African ocean, sort of towards Egypt. So it's a really interesting location. It was taken over by different people throughout history, the Byzantines from Greece, the Romans, the Ottomans. So they have a really unique culture. But what I found the most fascinating were these 6,000-year-old temples where goddess statues were found, some of which were at least eight to nine feet tall. Wow. And the civilization, they just disappeared. They stopped existing. Like it's the weirdest phenomenon. They did, They left the island and then over 2,000 years later, another ancient civilization sprouted up. They look like they came over from mm-hmm. another place, which they're still not sure where those people came from. So there's a lot of unknowns and the mystery of it was one of the most fascinating things for me. And what I loved was how how curvaceous these goddesses were. They were they were big oh. women. They had <laughs> their thighs were like the the focal point. There was lots of different statues they found. Some of them the women were reclining. Some of them they were standing. Some of them there's a famous one called the Sleeping Lady, and it's actually not that big. It's a small votive offering they found at the bottom of a burial chamber. So it was a well that they would bury bodies around. And it's a woman laying on her side. And again, her butt and her hips are like the focal point. So, you know, we can say, okay, it's probably fertility rights, but it was just so beautiful the way they captured her in this. And the people looked different. Like if you go to Malta today, you know, they the folks look Mediterranean. But these women all had Polynesian sort of features to their face. Interesting. So it was very interesting. And I I knew they were there. There's a temple. Actually, uh, it's not a temple. It's the burial chamber I mentioned. That's called the Hal Safiani Hypogeum. Hypogeum comes from the Greek epogeo, which means underground, basement. And Hmm. I'd seen it in a documentary called Ancient Apocalypse on Netflix. And I was like, whoa, this place is crazy. So I looked it up. And you have to book tickets really far in advance. So if you're interested in going to Malta, book Hal Safiani months in advance so that you can get in. They only let a few people in a day because of the oxygen composition, how it erodes the cave paintings. And they had this pervasive painting style and carving style of spirals that really, really just moved me. My, my, my coven has spiral in the name of it that I am, am a member of. So I was really, I'm always drawn to the way spirals are used in ancient traditions because they're so deeply rooted in my personal practice. And I see them as a symbol for the way time is not linear, for the way lessons in shadow work always find their way back to us. The spiral is is so symbolic of what we are as witches and how we view everything, life, death, creation, destruction. And to see it in these, these ancient tombs and temples was just just unbelievable. And they had a really strong understanding of acoustics that really blew my mind. Like they, there are places and one in particular called the Oracle cave in this hypogeum that 
when you stand in one section and you have a deep resonant voice, it echoes across every section of the three-story place. And this was carved in 6,000 6, years ago. So imagine the way they must have known what to do to not have that have collapsed by now. And Malta is on a major wow. fault line. So it has earthquakes constantly and mm-hmm. it's never collapsed. So huh. it was it was really fascinating. And I'm actually planning to do a workshop. I'm doing more research now and I'm speaking with some of the people I met while I was there to put together a workshop this summer on the, you know, these prehistoric goddess rites and what we know about them, what we'd like to know about them. And most importantly, how that connects to us today, because there was so much, you know, the way they used a sacred well, the way they viewed their ancestors and venerated them, the way they, you know, had some, from what we can tell, had some communal practices, the way they worshiped the goddess. There's so much that we can see echoed of these people, whether we know them truly or not in the way we practice today. So so stay tuned. If you're not already, sign up for my newsletter on SeekingNumina.com and you'll get notified of when that workshop comes out. I'm thinking it'll probably be June or July. And this is all coming from the perspective of kitchen witches who practice eating and cooking and and sourcing the f- ingredients we use from sources that support our personal ideologies and theologies in the craft. As we know, witches have multiple backgrounds and beliefs, but one thing we all share in common is a love of the earth and an agreement to live in the best way to support the environment's health, the earth's longevity, and the health of our energy, understanding that, you know, what we do feeds our energy and the energy of, of what goes on around us. And food is a really important part of that. Well, the way we eat shouldn't be different than the way we shop or the way we spend our time or the people we socialize with. Food should also be an ethical part of our life. And we recognize like this is a challenging choice to make. And there are financial restraints, there are time restraints, there are mental health restraints that might keep you from making certain choices or doing this to the best of the possibility of it. You know, there's definitely people out there who have more resources of, of any or all of those that I mentioned that can do better. But I do believe that we can all do a little bit better. And in a lot of ways, it just comes from not knowing. Like there's a lot of things that we are intentionally kept in the dark about that it takes a lot of research, which of course not everybody has time to do to figure out that (laughs) something is really bad for the earth. So we're just going to give you a few things that for the most part are just don't do these things or eat these things kind of advice based on our, our research. And they also are, you know, we're hoping to save you the time and energy of like doing some of that research, but also you can definitely use these as jumping off points to continue your research, which would, we always advocate for. Absolutely. And and don't ever think that you have to do everything that we recommend or suggest no, it's or too stressful. that we do personally. Yeah. T- take one thing, one perspective, one element, one habit change. And that's all you need to do. It doesn't have to be this huge life changing 
aspect because nine times out of 10, <laughs> once we do too much, we're trying to change too much all at once, we're going to revert back because it's overwhelm. So really take take in this episode and find the, the elements that work best for you. And then once you master the elements that you want to master, move on to what else you can do. And in my perspective, and I, I echo this in my book, uh, Magic in the Kitchen, where being conscious is essential as a kitchen witch. We are not only feeding our bodies, but we're also feeding the energy that is going into our magic, into our spells. Yeah. And if we're going to manifest the best results, we need to have the best energy at our back, whether that be solely your intention or that be through your intention mixed with the ingredients you use. And when we are intentionally harmful to the environment, to our bodies, to the energy at hand, then we've got an issue, right? But it doesn't, it's, the intention gets tainted when we're intentionally being neglectful and harmful. And not to say that, you know, if you choose to use a paper plate once in a while, that's intentionally being harmful. That's just once in a while. It's when that paper plate becomes your entire mealtime routine every single day where you're using a new paper plate or heaven forbid, I'm sorry, but uh, you know, styrofoam Ugh. where that <laughs> that's it. It's like a curse word to me. I hate it is. styrofoam. It's, it's, such, it's illegal in so Europe. Damaging. Like, oh, oh, it's literally nice. not even legal here because of how well, damaging it is to the earth. Cause not right. only does it not biodegrade, but it doesn't ever, right. it actually ever sinks into the earth and mm-hmm. poisons that soil. So it's, it's worse yeah. than anything. So bad. Yeah. And here in America, we have a lot of things that are in our foods that are absolutely banned elsewhere because of all the harmful effects. So the more we can educate ourselves on that, the better we can treat ourselves, which once we treat ourselves better, our magic gets better. Our manifestations become more solid and grounded and and quick. So I think there's there's a huge correlation here that I think gets overlooked, especially when we're talking about the the budget witchcraft. I'm using my little air quotes here, the budget witchcraft scene, which I see popping up more and more and more, the dollar store witch type thing. Nothing wrong with that. Don't think I'm I'm throwing any shade on that. If you're on a budget, you have to utilize what you can. But there's also the aspect of being able to make it yourself from raw ingredients, candles, um, symbols, that sort of thing. You don't have to buy anything except food. Food's the one thing you do have to buy, right? So why not try and make it the best quality as possible so that you are treating yourself with the highest quality possible and giving yourself more longevity as well as the earth a little bit more longevity and love. We love getting your stories and hearing your experiences, and we are planning a listener-led episode all about how witchcraft changed your life. And we're using this service. It's totally free. It's really easy. No accounts or anything like that. Go to speakpipe.com and search Magic Kitchen Podcast, and it's a way for you to leave an old-fashioned voicemail telling us your story. So we're really excited to do that. I think it's going to be a way to really build community with everybody, even if you're a listener, but you know, you're not on social media. This is a way to do that, to join us. So 
how did witchcraft change your life? How did witchcraft empower you? So take some time, go to speakpipe.com slash magic kitchen podcast or follow the link in the description. So we wanted to start with, with the biggest advice we can give you, which is to eat locally. This is the number one thing I think we should all be focusing on. A common question we get is, uh, you know, is it okay to eat meat as a witch? Or is it okay to be a vegetarian or vegan or instead of a vegan? You know, like there's actually a big assumption that witches don't eat meat ever. And the reality is the in our experience, the best thing you can do isn't drastic life changes. Like we said, that usually leads to reversions back. If, if not steps yeah. behind where you started right this minute, Absolutely. but it's eating locally. There's this concept of food miles and food miles are the idea that your food travels a certain distance to get to you. And those miles, the, the larger they are, the worse they are for the environment. So if you live in Europe and you go to the grocery store, there's actually numbers on your food that denote the food mileage. So if I go to my, my local Lidl, that's where I grocery shop here, and I pick up some shrimp, they could come from Greenland, they could come from Cyprus, they could come from England. And depending on where it is, the bigger the number on them, the further away they came from. So Greenland is like a 47 or something, because that's pretty far from me here in Greece. But Cyprus is like a three, because it's not nearly as far. So I don't need to know you know, math and do these miles calculations myself, I get to just look at that. So if you live in Europe, that's a great tip. Start looking at the numbers on your food. Mm -hmm. In America, of course, that does not exist. So eating locally can be a challenge because how do you, how do you know? How do you know? So one thing you can do is look for farmer's markets. You can also look for online shipping services um, that are, about eating locally. So like CSAs or co-ops, they often do either a pickup service or a drop-off service, like a a shipping service, which is going to be your local produce. Um, So that's, that's a really good place to start. I would say if, if, if it's too overwhelming already, pause it, come back to it in another year or so, just start (laughs) eating locally and we'll talk to you later. (laughs) Well, we went I still go through them um, a couple of times a year. It's a local place here where they have this online ordering thing where they have a list of what they have available and then you check off what you want or don't want. And so you know what you're getting. And then they have a local pickup place where it's dropped off. We used to do this in my shop. They would come, they would drop off everybody's orders off in the shop and then everybody would just, you know, who ordered would come and pick it up and go on their merry way. They never have to step inside a grocery store. Some of them um, had uh, times where they could pick, you could pick up at the, the location itself, like uh, Spoutwood farm out here was a big one. They had their CSA where they would have a window, come and pick up your, your share. And it was always fresh food grown right there. If you wanted a discount on your food, you could volunteer at the farm helping them weed, helping them, you know, plant and, and all that stuff. And your food would essentially almost be free because you donated your time. So there's always options there. There was one like that in Lancaster that I volunteered at. Um, I didn't volunteer from the farming side. I volunteered at an event as a caterer where they Ah. made all the food and I'm racking my brain. I don't remember what it was called. I hope it's still there because this was when I was in college. (laughs) 
But yeah, like look at look it up in your area. Like look for the CSAs. Yeah. And then once you find them, contact them or check their website and see if they're doing volunteer opportunities because it can right. get expensive to try to eat ethically. And, and we all know that, right? We try to eat organic. But but the fact of the matter is a big myth is that eating organic is necessarily better for you. Right. Unfortunately, in the U.S., organic produce has the ability to use a dozen different pesticides, which in Europe are not organic pesticides. So in the States, when you're buying organic produce, it actually is not organic most of the time. I mean, if you go to a local person, you can literally ask them like, what pesticides do you use? And hopefully they'll be honest and tell you. But when it comes to the grocery store and it just has that label, that label isn't really as good as we think it is. And I was like pretty disappointed and shocked when I found that out. So yeah. Yeah. Because the USDA only makes it a certain percentage that it has to be considered organic i yeah. think it's like 90 it's it's not even 99 percent. it's lower than 99 percent. i don't remember the exact um percentage but yeah usda does not make them refuse the banned chemicals it doesn't account for a lot of things yeah and those vegetable washes that you can buy at the grocery store in the u.s they also have chemicals in them that are pretty bad for you. So if you are looking yeah, for a just way to use vinegar. Yes, exactly. That's what I was gonna say. Soak them <laughs> in white vinegar. It is a bummer yeah. because certain things like strawberries, you're worried about the flavor. I've actually never had that ah. problem. I will dilute my well, vinegar and, and it's Yeah. And and vinegar is great at killing mold. So berries, which tend to mold more quickly, if you you know, give them a little soak in that diluted vinegar and then dry them off really well, they won't they won't go bad as quickly. And you don't need any chemical on them. Yeah, it's really cool. Hmm, I didn't know that. Yeah. So there's definitely things we can do that, you know, do help. And there's things that we're told that help that do not, like the <laughs> organic not, thing. Yeah. So don't stress about the organic labels. No, no, don't even. And I've found that a lot of things that that think about it, our great grand grandparents, how did they do things? How did they preserve food? How did they wash food? How did they get their food? Because not everybody lived near a grocery store. Not everybody lived, you know, they they did grow a lot of their own stuff, but they also traded with their neighbors. So maybe you have a garden, then your neighbor has a garden and you don't have things that, you know, you don't grow things that your neighbor grows and vice versa. Or your neighbor has a overabundance of zucchini and you know a million different ways to make zucchini outside of zucchini bread (laughs) yeah there are options out there you just have to get a little creative Mm -hmm. and another thing you can do to help this kind it's sort of eating locally is um sign up for services i wish we had a sponsorship for this but like imperfect foods (laughs) or right um the one that I used when I lived in Baltimore was called Hungry Harvest, and they're a much smaller organization, and they're not available everywhere. But what these organizations do is they take food that is either very close to expiring or was considered non-classifiable by the grocery store. So this is produce that maybe this avocado is is not small, and it's not large. So they don't know how to label it, so they're going to throw it away. Like, I wish I was kidding, but that's like a real phenomenon. Or this apple has a little too much yellow spots and not enough red spots, so we can't label it as gala. So we're going to throw that away. So these foods are not expired. They're not rotting. They're not damaged. They are just unclassifiable. 
Or it might yeah. be like I used to get protein shakes through them. These protein shakes were $7 a bottle. I would never have been able to afford them. But through them, you could get four for $5. So I would like, oh. you know, stock up. I loved them. But it was because the <laughs> label was printed wrong. So gotcha. it's okay. these kinds of situations. The food isn't bad. It's just not marketable in the capitalist sense. So yeah. look for these websites. They're really helpful and they're cheap. I saved so much money doing it and I was alleviating food waste. Like it was a win-win for yeah. everybody. And uh, well, in, in, along that lines, another option is if you have like a small local grocery store. There's a couple of them out here where they're connected to their own farms or, or they have like a network of local farms. What they'll have is what they call seconds. And those are usually like tucked away, maybe um, just inside their, you know, the the back doors of their produce section or whatever. But if you ask them, can I buy seconds? And what that is, is this unclassifiable, they're, they're imperfect foods or they're near going bad. They just can't put it out on the shelf because of our capitalistic mindset. People will go, ew, I'm not buying that, even though it's mm-hmm. a perfectly good tomato or perfectly good apple or perfectly good bag, you know, a basket of berries that just needs to be used in the next couple of days instead of sitting in the fridge for a week. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I just remembered this, too. I was watching Down to Earth with Zac Efron on Netflix. His second season takes place exclusively in Australia. And I know we have some listeners there. He was in Melbourne and they met with a couple of of companies that do the same thing. So if you're in Australia, there is a company doing this there. I don't remember what it's called, but I'm sure it's Googleable. And it's one of those things, once you know it exists, you can start looking for it. And, you know, chances are your Facebook ads are now going to say this because you listen to this podcast episode. (laughs) (laughs) The Magic Kitchen Podcast is funded and supported by thewitchwoodteahouse.com, offering a variety of hand-blended loose leaf teas, as well as loose herbs for all of your ritual, spell work, wellness, and everyday enjoyment needs. If you would like to support this podcast while sipping a great cup of tea, head over to thewitchwoodteahouse.com and find the magic that's in store for you. So next, let's talk about conscious cooking and in this, like what you probably should not be eating, at least on a, not on a regular basis, if not completely eliminating it from your diet. Uh, the first one is tuna, which it's, it is a keystone species and there is no such thing as dolphin safe tuna. I know that like growing up, that was a big thing. You always looked for the can with the dolphin safe, you know, logo on it. Um, and this is a hard one because I know tuna is such an easy, you know, meal. You get it out of the can, throw some mayonnaise in there and you have lunch, right? But I'm sh- there are options to that. There's other options you can um, utilize as far as getting a quick meal. Um, I want to say eggs, but now that eggs are yeah, <laughs> skyrocketing. So oh my gosh, I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can find other forms of fish if it's fish that you're really looking for or maybe you switched chicken um from a local source that sort of thing there's there's other options other than tuna and 
mushrooms actually are a really good substitute. Now, be careful with this because you don't want to look for the highly processed, like, mushroom-based foods that are, like, yeah, actually yeah, yeah. not really much mushroom, like like corn, Q-U-R-N. The stuff's delicious, yes. but it's unfortunately not very good for your body. Um, but, yeah, and just to go back to the tuna thing, the problem with it being a keystone species is that it if it falls apart, the food chain above and below it also falls apart. So that's what Fall we mean when we say yeah. keystone. So that's like it has devastating effects when their populations are, d- are diminished like they are currently being by unethical yeah. fishing practices. And when yeah. we say no such thing as dolphin free, that that is what we're saying is like you're eating dolphin when you eat tuna. And as you know, dolphins are the smartest animal on the planet. So we don't want to eat them. So that's a really uncomfortable fact that I used it to is. love tuna. It was my go-to food. And then I watched Sea Spiracy on Netflix. Again, not a sponsorship. I wish it was. And it <laughs> opened my eyes to a lot of things. And I essentially only eat seafood now when I'm in Greece. And I literally know the farmer's name, the, the, the fisher's right. name, who caught it. And I know where he caught it. I'm looking at the same sea. Like, that's it now. I don't eat seafood otherwise, unfortunately. Yeah, it makes sense. It is really good for us. But then then it's also not because there's microplastics. So, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's never ending. Another one is palm oil. This is found in not just food. It's also found in beauty products. Yes. Um, it's a, it's a very sh- shelf-stable oil. That's why it's so um, prevalent in consumer goods. But it is detrimental to orangutans and the forest they live in because literally they demolish their homes. And um, even even some cinnamon is uh, detrimental to orangutans. And so you really – the overall overarching theme of, of this list that we're going through and these ideas that we're putting out to you is just to be very conscious of where your stuff comes from. Like the cinnamon I use in my tea blends, it's orangutan-friendly and it's it's organic. It's one of those things that I'm very specific about, which is why most of my tea blends have a higher price point because I'm very conscious about the ingredients. And I do this not only in the things that I blend, but also in my own cooking. So I don't use anything with palm oil in it if I can avoid it. And there's very few things. I cook a lot of things from scratch um, because I am trying to eat more clean. And so if you're on a clean eating plan or lifestyle, this is something you really want to be, pay attention to is tuna, palm oil, and other other things that we'll talk about moving forward. And really to reiterate, palm oil's in your soap, it's in your shampoo, and yes. it's not necessary. Yes. It has no health benefits. No. It's only beneficial to the company that saves a buck. So really, yeah. like you're not losing anything. Like we understand the tuna thing can be very hard. Palm oil, you're not losing a thing. Look for an olive oil-based soap. It is infinitely more ethically produced. And yeah, yeah it's or just... Make your own. You can make your own. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> you can make everything yourself, except tuna, I guess. Unless you've got a really <laughs> nice backyard. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Another part of conscious cooking is factory farmed meats and trying Mm -hmm. to avoid eating them now i actually don't eat pork at all because pigs are the fourth smartest animal in the world they can remember a 16 digit chain of numbers and that is why they are the only factory farmed animal kept behind like prison doors like a person Mm. 
Yeah. They are. They can let themselves out. <laughs> it's so heartbreaking that they're being eaten. Like they're well aware of what's going on with them. And I'm not going to get into the details, but they are also the least protected animal. So they are murdered in brutal ways by factory farms. It's like, I'm not, I won't tell you. It's just that bad. If you want to look it up, go for it. But factory farm meats, think about the energy that we're consuming. We're consuming fear and suffering when we eat a factory farmed animal. Mm. And that cruelty is going to affect the flavor if we want to be selfish about it. And it's going to also affect the energy of us because that's the energy we're consuming. Food is energy, right? So really being careful about factory farmed meats is important. It's and I I want to I want to stress that because I did not realize and I, I write about this in my book too. If you read my book, Magic in the Kitchen, I wrote about this because when I first moved out on my own, so growing up we always had a farm. My grandfather um, raised his own beef, raised our own pork, chickens. Um, we even had rabbit on the farm, which that was that one didn't sit right with me as a child, <laughs> but, um, and we had goats for milk and all that stuff. So growing up, I only knew fresh meat in, in, in goat milk. I didn't never knew anything about going to the grocery store and getting my meat and dairy products. So, um, when I moved out on my own, <laughs> I you know I go to the store. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna make this chicken. I'm have a nice dinner. It's my first dinner in my house. I opened up the chicken, and it smelled rancid to me because I was not used to how old meat is in the grocery store, or and all the stuff that they pump it full, like all the, the saline and stuff that they put that they into soak it. it in yeah, in and chlorine, all the stuff to preserve it. I mean, the meat you buy from the grocery store in those big, big packets, that stuff's old. It's not fresh meat. It's only considered fresh because they didn't freeze it or because it's, you know, it's still edible loosely. (laughs) And I thought I was going crazy. I called my mom and I'm like, mom, what's wrong with this meat? It says this. Like, should I take it back? She's like, no. She's like, that's grocery store meat. She's like, you're not used to it because you have been eating off the farm since you were a little kid. So I'm like, oh, okay. So whenever I can, I buy locally and fresh, you know, from butchers that are local because it is so different and you don't realize it until you start doing this. Same with like uh, grass fed butter uh, versus, you know, factory produced butter. It is a, a a drastic difference in flavor, texture, and just how it cooks. You're not going to have all this water that like cooks out of it. And they're more, I don't know, to me, they're more juicy that way. It's just much better quality. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed an immediate difference here. Like I, in the States, I never would have just mm-hmm. eaten a grilled chicken breast because it tastes horrible. And here yeah. the chicken has a good flavor and it's because yes. Like, like you said, it's a lot fresher and it's also coming from where I am. Like there was no food miles yeah. to it. Like if I, yeah. like here you actually do it like the fifties in the States where you go to the butcher <laughs> and you point to the meat and he says, oh, this was from yep. this morning. And if anything is not from that morning, it's in a different section and it's half the price. Yeah. 
So like, yes. you know what you're getting. And it's also, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's all mom and pops here, which is nice too. So there's it no is. like yeah. international conglomerate telling you yeah. where you're like, it's and chicken I know from here. It is. And and I know where I live, like there are, there's probably a local butcher almost, you know, in every single little town. Sometimes there's two or three. So there, you have a choice around here. Now, growing up in California, it was a little different but I, like I said, I can't fully remember because we had my grandfather's farm where we got all of our meat from. So he had his own butcher. And the guy would come to his farm, kill the animals ethically, and then take the the cattle or the pig or the chickens away and then process them and cut them up into their, their portions. And But I know even growing up, I, I know there were, there were like mom and pop stores everywhere. It might just be a little more inconvenient because you can't just you know do it all one shopping trip in one place. You have to kind of plan out, out a little bit. But the more you plan out, the better quality your food's going to end up. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, we'd really appreciate a five-star review. It helps us to reach more listeners like you and to keep doing the Magic Kitchen podcast. Thank you. Another thing to be aware of is the ethical side of overly farmed foods and foods that usually are a buzzword food. So you guys might remember like there was randomly a craze for goji berries for like two years and then everybody stopped buying them or kava. That was a TikTok trend recently, or blue pea flower, or matcha, or jackfruit, or quinoa. And the thing that in the West that we need to remember is that if this is a random food that's quote unquote new, that it's coming from a local population that did eat it in their local environment, and maybe now they can't afford it, or maybe now it's being over farmed and those fields are going to now dry out and be nutrient depleted because of this over farming, or maybe they will have a famine because of this over farming, or maybe more rainforest is going to be destroyed. Like with quinoa, quinoa is one of the least ethically produced foods because it is, they destroy the Amazon to grow quinoa because Mm. it has to be grown in like a certain climate. So there are ethical concerns, not even, it's not even always about the ingredients themselves. Like you might think, okay, it's just quinoa. Quinoa is one thing. So that's the ingredient. But where did it come from? Was it fair trade? And even fair trade labels, that might not really be enough. Like it usually is like with with coffee. I think coffee is like extremely regulated. But some of these new buzzwords that are just, you know, you're buying it on Amazon or whatever from some third party guy, like it's just think about it a little bit because we don't know, you know, it's hard to know where these weird Weird to the West ingredients are coming from. Kava, I can speak directly to because I stopped blending with kava about two years ago. Once when I found out how endangered kava is. And the reason it is endangered is because before we can harvest the root, the plant has to mature. And it takes four to five years for that plant to mature. So right there is a lag. And the old farmers who would man these small fields, they are dying off. And there's no new generation that's coming in. They're basically depleting 
the plants that take this time to grow and mature before you can harvest the root. So kava is one of those things where I do I don't buy it anymore. I don't blend with it anymore, even though it's super effective. It's a great muscle relaxant. It's such a great nerving. It's wonderful for relaxing the body. But there are other herbs that are probably just as, or I know they're just as effective. And you can blend them with other herbs to, to increase their effectiveness, um, like milky oats. You can use that and oats grow everywhere, right? <laughs> and they're quick. You don't have to worry about, you know, even oat straw is great. Uh, nettle is great. Lemon balm is great. And you don't have to rely on one plant or one herb to do a certain job. There are, for every one plant that does, oh, this amazing job doing X, Y, Z, there's probably 30 other ones that can do the same job and are better for the environment that take less time to mature that don't require so much space, that sort of thing. Yeah. I'd say the rule for it foods is if it's not able to be got locally for you, Mm -hmm. where can you get it from and how much can you learn about where you can get it from? And if the answer is not much, if there's a lot of question marks in your research, then it's probably something to be skipped, but then you can do, start doing like Leandra said and and looking at ways to find something else. Like ashwagandha is a fantastic replacement for like anxiety. Like a kava was, I think Mm -hmm. the trend on TikTok was like about anxiety. Ashwagandha is so much better. Like I've, I've had both. Like I had a kava tea and I had Mm -hmm. an ashwagandha tea and ashwagandha wins every time. Now maybe that's just me, but it's worth a try (laughs) and it is growable in lots of climates. Yeah. Well, kava is it, it we don't drink it traditionally either kava the kava root tea is supposed to be fermented and and drunk in a more ceremonial aspect and like i said it takes four to five years for this plant to mature so the root can be harvested and keep in mind when you r- harvest that root you're killing the plant yeah. so you have to have a backup for that so if, if the new farmers coming in are not accounting for this this time differential then we're going to have an issue. Um, there's some talk of coconut going the same route where the old farmers are dying mm-hmm. out. So these plantations are being bought up by big corporations that don't know how to manage these farms. So, you know, there's there's so many variables here. And ashwagandha is one of those alternatives to kava. Not only is it great at, you know, it's an adaptogen. So it gives your body that chance to recover from stress, especially if you are in a high stress environment, but it also helps balance your hormones. It does so much where the kava only does maybe one thing really well, where the ashwagandha might do two things really well. So that you really getting to know these plants. And I know it's hard because a lot of this comes from being an herbalist and I've spent a lot of time researching and <laughs> getting to know these plants. I can just say, Oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to ditch this herb and I'm going to go for this one because I know it'll do this just as well. That's just accumulating knowledge over 25 plus years. So the average witch might not have that ability. So this is where you ask questions, go get some books. Um, do you know? Take a class on herbs for certain um, 
purposes. Or um, I'm I'm planning to have a magical herbalism class coming up that'll offer a bunch of options. So, you know, keep keep your ears open, keep your eyes open for the knowledge you, you seek. It's there. Are you ready to start living a magical life? Join me in my Patreon community where I'm sharing rituals for every Sabbath and full moon, weekly journal prompts, and new on the new moon articles highlighting new practices from around the world. Joining a community can be the thing you need to keep your practice active and engaging. For more information, visit patreon.com slash Elise Wells or follow the community link on seekingnumina.com. So when we're talking about the ethics of eating, as witches, we want to remember that food is the earth. Whether we're talking about animals that we eat or we're talking about plants that we eat, it is of the earth and we are of the earth. And we want to honor the land with the way that we ingest the land. So along those lines, we also need to think about food waste and how to eliminate or at least reduce that. So we mentioned planning ahead. That is actually an, a really good way to alleviate food waste is to have a, a really strict shopping list and to not go to the grocery store mm. hungry. And then you will stick to your <laughs> list and then you'll know how you're going to eat it. You know, you can plan your meals out and you don't have to plan mm. like, oh, I'm going to use this and that and this and this and this and spice. And you can just say, I'm going to have chicken, broccoli and rice that day. So you buy one bushel yep. of broccoli. You know, really yes. plan it like that. You don't have to worry so much about your, you know, the marinades or the spices. Like, don't overwhelm yourself with it. But what you can do is make this part of your full moon ritual. So your full moon, maybe actually do full moon and new moon. Make part of that sitting down and doing your meal prepping. Because this might yeah. all sound like mundane magical tips, right? Like, oh, that's, that's redundant, <laughs> isn't it? Mundane tips. But they're magical tips because... <laughs> They're about living in harmony with the earth. And that's what we want to do as witches. No matter what you believe, from Wiccans to voodoo practitioners to heathens to Hindus, right? We just want to live in harmony with the earth. And this is the way to do it. This is the practical, maybe a bit frustrating side of that. (laughs) So plan ahead. And when you know something is going bad, try to keep an eye on your food. Stay mindful of things and freeze things Mm -hmm. before they go bad, right before. Even if it's like that day, it's going to go bad, freeze it. And then you can toss it in a soup or something later. You can make stock from the bones. You can compost any and all remaining bits. And if you don't compost, look for a local drop-off point that does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Um, I compost all the time and all I do is I keep... I have, I have one of those big compost turning drums in the backyard, but I don't run out there every single day and dump stuff in it. So what I do is I have a stainless steel compost bin. It's ventilated. It has like a, a you know, a, it's all self-contained. So it's stainless steel. I can throw it in the dishwasher when it gets yucky. But I throw my tea in there, I, my used tea, my, my banana peels, my onion skins, whatever. And all the things that I know can be composted, I throw it all in there. And then once a week, I take it out to the bin, open it up, throw everything in, give it a good, you know, toss. 
but you don't have to do it that way. It it can be just like a, a fenced in plot in your yard or uh, my sister used to use an old um, storage bin. Actually, it was a double storage bin. So it was two stacked inside of each other, one stacked inside the other. And the one, the top one had holes in the bottom. The other one was contained. And so she would put, she lived in an apartment. She's always lived in apartments. So this would be, you know, out on her patio and she would just throw her kitchen scraps in there, give it a, a little toss with a trowel. And what would happen is every time she added water to it, the water would filter down and create the, a compost tea, which she would then water all her houseplants with. So it's, you know, it wasn't huge. It wasn't this big thing. You could do it with um, five gallon buckets if that's all you have available. And it doesn't take a whole lot of room and it doesn't stink. I know a lot. that's one of the worries <laughs> people have about composting is that if it's going to smell, if you're not putting proteins in there, like meat, cheese, that sort of thing, it's not going to stink. It won't smell at all. It smells like earth is what it smells like. Yeah. And there's a lot of, like we said, you can start with one thing that we've suggested here. Mm -hmm. And you don't even have to start. You can let this ruminate, sit in the back of your mind. In your next ritual, meditate on this. Think about your connection to the earth. And being conscious. And that's 90%, I think, of our practice as a witch is being conscious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not zoning out and going with the flow and just assuming everything is okay. Yeah. Because... That's the purpose of intention is to be very directed, pointed and conscious of what we're doing, why we're doing it, when we're doing it and how we're doing it. And taking that time, like you said, during the new moon or full moon or both to plan out. You can do it each each quarter of, you know, every two weeks if you really need to. And maybe maybe you focus the new moon to the full moon you focus on what you want to bring into your diet what practices you want to flourish and cultivate and then maybe you know waning moon to the the dark moon those are the things you're trying to purge from your habit set and you're trying to remove the things out of your diet and your habits that don't serve you or don't add to the energy of your path yeah and when we're talking about the energy of our path, the energy of our craft, what we put into our bodies and what we cook and do every single day is the meat and bones of that. No pun intended. Okay, every pun intended. <laughs> I was going to say that's good. <laughs> but, but, you know, we, we have to be conscious. And I know it's really hard when we're working nine to five and we have the kids and we have the dogs and we have the cats and we have the family and the blah, 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 you know, all this stuff. But this is where setting those really good boundaries for ourselves and our needs comes into play. Because when we start setting those positive boundaries where we're like, okay, I am going to do this from this time to this time and I want no interruptions. So please respect that. And it it's I think we sometimes we make things harder than they have to be. So really take one thing and make it work. If it doesn't work, then see how creative you can get with working around the idea that you you're trying to implement. Find the thing that works for you. Find the things that work for you and use the moon cycles to help you do that. Use 
the energy of the land to help you do that. Use the energy of a candle to help you do that. Whatever you have available to you, make it conscious and make it purpose-driven. Yeah. Conscious eating is empowered eating. And that's the key. And that's what you feed a witch. (laughs) (laughs) You feed a witch conscious food. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And conscious empowerment. I love it. (laughs) Mary meet. Mary part. And and Mary meet meet again. again. Thank you for joining us on the Magic Kitchen podcast. Please visit my website, leandrawitchwood.com, for news, information, and more episodes. I'm Elise Wells, and I can be found at Seeking Numina on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook, and SeekingNumina.com. That's Seeking, N-U-M-I-N-A.